ask you to turn your Bibles with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at verse 17 today. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Just to let you know how shook I was when my microphone stopped working, I was supposed to welcome any guests that we have with us, so I am glad you're here. And uh, we are thankful that you're here with us. And if you are a guest with us, we'd love to have record of it. We have a gift for you immediately after the service across our Welcome Center. They'll have something there. And we would love to know that you're here and be able to serve you in any way. I also want to mention now and take this time to mention about next week as we gather together on July 4th, we'll gather together to exercise our freedom. Amen our freedom in America to get together, assembly together, and worship our King Jesus. And so we will do that next week. And not only will we do that, during our time of worship, we're going to have a special time where we uh, will partake of the Lord's Supper together. So you want, we want you to be here if you can and be a, be a part of that in, in hopes, uh, knowing it's a special Sunday and the importance for us to take the Lord's Supper Together, we will have one service next week as a body to gather together, one service. So make note, it'll be at 10 o'clock. You're fine if you come at your same time. You can just hang out. Now, the other ones, I got to get them here a little earlier, but it'll be at 10 o'clock next Sunday and uh, just one service. There will be no uh, life groups um, uh, meeting next week, just one service as we gather together, celebrate the Lord's Supper. There will be child care and those things. So come and be a part of that as we look forward to uh, exercising that freedom to worship our King here at First Baptist Taylor's and partake of that supper together. With all of that in mind, we turn here our attention to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and we have arrived this morning. Some of you may be glad we have made it to the 10th commandment. The last one in our series, of course. And so as we close out our series on the Ten Commandments, we come to the last one, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Our attention will go there. And so let's read this passage together if you have your Bibles with you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the Tenth Commandment says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. And just as we prayed before, we thank you for the ability to worship you today that you have blessed us with. God, as we think about our teams in Alaska even worshiping today together there, we're thankful for the body of Christ that you have here at Taylor's First, but not only that, the body of Christ throughout the world. And so, God, we rejoice that today, throughout this world, your name is being proclaimed, even in places where it is not welcome, even in times and in spots, Father, where it could be under penalty. But, God, your name is still proclaimed. For you have not left this world without a witness to you. And so, God, may we be bold witnesses. May we be clear witnesses. May we be faithful witnesses. And in order for us to be all of that, God, may we find today our satisfaction finally and completely in you, our Lord and our King. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And so, God, we praise you now as we proclaim 
this word. May you work through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. When we started, we started with the first commandment, obviously. Remember the scene, remember the time as they gathered there. The people of God had been brought out of captivity, out of bondage of Egypt. They have been brought to Mount Sinai and they'd been gathered there around the mountain and God came down and began to speak to them. In fact, as we read this passage, you recognize that God is speaking these words to them and he begins by saying, by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who's redeemed you from slavery. And so God has redeemed them and saved them. And then he tells them, here's how you should live. Here's how you should live. You should live in light of my redemption, in light of what I have done for you. So in verse 2, I'm the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he flows directly into these, what we call the ten words or the ten commandments. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. From the beginning, we made the statement that that first commandment, that first commandment is the foundation of all the rest. If you take the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. If you take that command seriously and seek to keep it, then most assuredly you will take the rest of the commandment seriously. If you take seriously that, that the Lord God, I'll have no other gods before him, he has first, he has the, the, the number one spot in my life, the primary loyalty to who I am, I'm going to follow him. If you take that commandment seriously, then you will see that all the others will be, others will be taken seriously. So therefore, it is the foundation of it. Remember, remember how God has saved them. He saved his people so that he could be with them. He didn't call them out and then leave them to themselves. He wanted to dwell with them. I am your God. You are my people, he said. God's people would be dwelling with God, and if they're going to dwell with him, then they need to know how to love him as he has loved them, and they need to know how to love one another. And then this commandment, this first commandment, gives that basis. So when we look back, thinking back to the beginning of the commandments, the first commandment is where all obedience begins. All of our obedience, all of our life and faithfulness begins with this commandment. You shall have no other gods before the one true and living God who has redeemed you. All of it is built upon that foundation. All of our obedience begins with the first commandment. The tenth commandment points us to the place where every sin begins. If the first commandment points us to the, the moment and understanding, this is where all of our obedience begins. No other gods before the one true and living God. The tenth commandment points us back to where all our disobedience begins. It points us back to where our sin begins. It takes us to the heart of the matter. In fact, the tenth commandment does explicitly what all the other commandments, hopefully you have seen, does implicitly. All the other commandments that speak to the actions that we are not to do testify to the condition of our heart. And as we've gone through all of these commandments, hopefully we have, have shown or demonstrated that, that what these commandments are really getting to is what is it that is in our heart. Because what's in our heart comes out, as we will see today. And so as all of these do, these commandments implicitly point to the heart. Well, the tenth commandment explicitly points to the heart. It gets us very much to the heart of it all. Thinking of the illustration here, and sometimes it's good, you know, to use illustrations from our life and our stories, and, and we definitely can do that, and surely you can, but, but I like sometimes to use illustrations from the Scriptures. 
And in this passage, we're reminded, I'm reminded every time of Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul is dealing with his own sin. And the Apostle Paul said he felt probably like that rich young ruler in, in the Gospels. He felt as if he had kept all of them. According to the law, he said, he told us later, he was righteous. He was faithful. He, he felt like he had kept all of those things, those sins and those actions. He had kept all of the law and he was faithful. But then he said, I got to that 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And when I got to that 10th commandment, it exposed that even in my faithfulness, I haven't had God first. Even in my faithfulness, I haven't put him as number one. It exposed the condition of his very heart. And the condition of our heart is what God looks at. The sin of coveting comes directly from our own hearts. So this morning, as we seek to examine as we want to get to that place just like the psalmist did when the psalmist said, search my heart, O God. If you want to say that to the Lord and call him to search your heart, then we need to understand the 10th commandment and understand how our hearts should look before him. So what does it mean then for us to covet? To covet is to desire something that belongs to someone else. It's simple as that. It's, it's to desire something, to yearn for something that belongs to someone else. Or as some may say, to have a hankering for something that does not belong to you but belongs to someone else. Whenever we set our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours, it is jealousy. It is longing for something else. Whenever we set our hearts not just wanting something that we don't have, however, but particularly wanting something that others have, that is coveting. That is coveting. It ultimately is marked by a desire. It ultimately is marked by desire. And that desire comes from a desire for the things of this world. Not for spiritual things. That's not what we should look at. We'll talk about that later. Not spiritual things. But coveting at its very heart is a desire for the things of this world. That others have. That you feel slighted by the fact that you don't have. So you won't. So you covet. As one has noted, a child seeing a toy in the hands of another quickly turns to coveting, right? We've experienced this. All of us have. And if you're anything like me, I've watched my child covet and look at that, and you can see it on the face. You know the look. To see the new toy in the hands of another child and see that look as they look to it, and coveting turns into stealing real quick. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It goes from I see that look to where I'm going to get that and take it. Coveting turns into stealing real quick. And so in that sense, we can understand it. Seeing something that you want that others have and going to take it. And surely, as we think about this this morning, surely adults in this room are more subtle than the children, right? They're more subtle with this. But what I would say, including to myself, just as the child sees a toy in the hands of another, so they go, they covet, and they take. So just as the child is guilty of coveting and stealing in that point, all of us in this room are guilty of coveting after what others have that we don't. The disappointment when someone else gets what we want. The disappointment when someone else has the worldly or material possession that we desire and they're able to get it. The truck, the vehicle, the car, the house, the clothes, whatever it is, we want that just as they have it. 
Assuredly, whenever we see that one who wants that job or that position that we've been trying to get and they offer it to someone else, we desire that. We want that. When we see that one with relationships that we wish we had with that person and we don't, so we long for and we want that. That's exactly what here the Lord says. Don't covet your neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. And just as surely as we see that and we think, man, if we only had what they had, we would be happy. If we only had those things, we would be happy. In fact, remember, remember the passage that I read when we were discussing the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I read a passage from James chapter 4, James chapter 4 verse 1, where James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. When we think about the child, they're coveting. When they look at that toy, it turns quickly into stealing. But for us as adults, as we see the lives of other and we, others and we wish we had that life and we wish we had those things and we wish that was us, when we look at this, our coveting oftentimes doesn't turn into stealing. What it turns into is murder, as the passage says. Why? Because we hate and that's what the scriptures teach us, even as we remember that sixth commandment, as we remember it, anybody who hates his brother is a murderer, Jesus says. And so ultimately, that coveting leads us to more sin. Why? Because it exposes the very heart that we have and the very heart and desires that we have. And oftentimes, oftentimes, instead of pushing those desires, desires out or putting them to death, as Paul says in Romans 8, we act upon them. So we steal and we murder, as James says, to get what we want. And coveting, coveting is no minor sin. We know none are, right? We know there's no such thing as minor sins. But of course, murder and adultery, they seem to get uh, more press, if you will. They seem to be more upfront, and we think this is, this is a major deal. But the Word of God is very clear. Listen to what is said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul is saying you've got to put these things to death in your own life. Put, put them out. Put them to death in them in your own heart and your own life. Why? He says because covetousness, all of these things put together. But when he ends with covetousness, he says that is idolatry. Because the very heart of covetousness is saying that the one who is on the throne, who rules and reigns, who should have first place in my life is not my greatest longing or my greatest desire. And he's not treated me well because he's not given me what I need. He's not treated me well because he's not fulfilled my greatest desires and my greatest wants. And so therefore, we covet, we want what others have. That, Paul says, is idolatry. And he, he goes to the next verse, by the way. If I were to read it together, he would say, put these things to death, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, he says. These things bring judgment. These things bring the wrath of God. It is coming for us. Covetousness, 
in its essence is worship of things and not the Lord. That, brothers and sisters, is no minor sin. There's no small thing. In fact, it's the most common type of idolatry among us. As we've said before, looking back through these commandments, none of us are carving out shapes and, and putting them in our house and bowing down to them, it seems like. But most assuredly, most assuredly, we are cover, coveting after things of this world and not after the Lord. Most assuredly, that's it. Ephesians chapter 5 Paul continues, he says, but sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, he says. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, he reminds us that the one who covets is an idolater trusting in the things of this world and not putting God first on the throne as he would. The one who covets is an idolater. And not only is the wrath of God against them, he tells us in Colossians, but also those who covet do not have a peace, do not even have an ounce in the kingdom of Christ. They do not belong to the Lord or his family. And so as he's telling them this, going into the promised land, getting them ready to go in, teaching them how to love God and love the other, love others, Paul uh, is going to remind us back of this thing. And the Lord is saying, the Lord is saying, as you go into the land, you are not of my people if you covet after other things. You're not of my people if you covet after anything that is your neighbor's. You don't have a place in my kingdom. And like I've tried to do in this series, the real issue we have with our sin is not just the action of our hands. The real issue we have is not just the action of our hands or the words of our mouth. By all means, we could be like that rich young ruler. We could be like Paul before his conversion. And we could say, all of these I have kept. All of these I have kept. But the real problem with our sin is not just the action of our hands, not just the words of our mouth, but it goes back to the very desires of our heart. And that's what this commandment teaches us. That's what this commandment teaches us. Now let's consider the heart for a moment in Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here in this essence, what Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord is saying through him is that it's the heart that is the problem of my people. If you remember with Jeremiah, in Jeremiah he was prophesying over a people who had fallen into grave sin. They turned their back on God. Though God had been good to them throughout their history, they turned their back. And as Jeremiah says, it is coming. The nations are going to come and judge you because of what you've done. And that judgment is coming from God. And remember, Jeremiah writes lamentations as well as he's watching Jerusalem burn and the temple de desecrated and thrown to the ground and he's lamenting what has happened. Jeremiah is saying the problem with God's people is not just the fact that they, they murder or they lie or they commit adultery. The problem with God's people ultimately and finally is in their hearts. The problem is in their hearts. 
And so the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. And what we know, what we know we must not do is we must not treat symptoms instead of getting to the heart of the disease, right? And so oftentimes in our lives, that's what we want to do. We think our problem may be lying. We think our problem may be stealing. We think our problem may be this. We think our problem may be that. When in reality, when we're trying to fix those, we're just fixing the symptoms of the great problem. We're just putting Band-Aid on a cancer. And the Lord says, it's the heart that's your problem. It's the heart that's your problem. And so ultimately... Jesus makes the same point. If you think Jeremiah is not enough, listen to what Jesus says in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 7. Jesus is trying to teach these people what it means and how it is to be defiled. And he says, for what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. Jesus says it's not your surroundings that defile you. It's not your circumstances that defile you. It's not the things going on in your life or where you have put yourself that defiles you. What defiles you is what comes out of your mouth and what you live out in your life because that comes from your heart. And the life you live is going to be a testimony to the heart that you have inside of you. The heart in Scripture represents not only the seat of all of our emotions, but the deepest and greatest love and loyalty that each and every one of us has. The heart gets to, when we look to God's Word, gets to where it is and who we are. It gets to what our loyalty is, where our greatest loves are, what are our desires. The heart is the center of all that we are in Scripture. So therefore, the importance is placed here upon the heart. And Jeremiah tells us it's deceitful. It's wicked. And Jesus tells us everything that's wicked comes out of it. It's your heart that displays. Your heart that displays who you are. Our our obedience in our life or our idolatry finds its origin in the heart. Whether we're going to serve God and be obedient to him or whether we're going to bow to others and other gods, all of that goes back to the condition of our heart. Of our heart. Luke 16, 15, Jesus says something that's so important then. It may be a passage, you, you may have heard someone say something like this most of your life. It may be something that you just kind of gloss over. But if that's the case, if it's our heart that matters before God, Luke 16, 15, Jesus says, God knows the heart. We can fool ourselves about our own heart. We can fool others about who we are and what we are, but we cannot fool God. God knows the heart. And as Proverbs tells us, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of a man reflects the man. The heart is going to tell you who you are. The heart is going to tell you what your loyalties are. The heart is going to tell you what you're devoted to. The heart is going to tell you what your greatest desires are. The heart reflects the man. And so the question must be asked for us today, what does your heart reflect? If the heart reflects who we are, then what does your heart reflect? Desire. Desire in and of itself is not bad. 
It's just what is it that you do desire? What is it that you do long for? The things of this world or the things of God? It's that simple, brothers and sisters. What is it that's your greatest desire? What is it that's your greatest longing? The things of this world or the things of God? In understanding this, I find two parables of Jesus to be helpful. Two of my favorite parables of Jesus. They're just simple. In fact, each one of them is only one verse. They go together. They're put there together. Very short, but very important. When Jesus is trying to understand or teach the people what it means to, to get the kingdom of God and, and what it would mean for, the, for them to have it, to obtain it, to get it, he gives these parables and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. It's like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Now, first, you may look at this and say, what in the world? I thought we were supposed to get that kingdom of heaven and go tell others about it. This parable is not teaching us about evangelism. This parable is teaching us about our hearts. This parable is teaching us about our desires. And so he says, when he sees this field, he's wandering through this field, he finds a treasure hidden in the field. He covers that treasure up. He goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. He gives another parable right after that in Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is teaching us about the value of his kingdom. When we consider all the things of this world, you could add them up, in other words, and they are not more precious than the treasure that that man found in the field. They're not more precious than that pearl of great price. And so what Jesus is saying is this. This, if you come to this passage and you see it, he's saying that if you see the kingdom of God and you see what it is and you know Christ and you know what it means to be a follower of him and you want that, then you go and you do what? You sell all of your worldly possessions. You give all of it up. You have no attachment to it whatsoever because it cannot offer, even in all of its abundance, even in all of the things you have, it can never offer you what the kingdom of God can give you. It can never satisfy you in any way. This is the test, by the way, of the 10th commandment. What is it that your heart desires more than anything else? You find the kingdom of God. Are you willing to go and sell everything else to get it? Do you recognize that were the whole realm of nature yours, that'd be an offering far too small? Do you recognize that if all the things of this world added up together, it wouldn't be worth the preciousness of the kingdom of God? Do you recognize that today? It gets to the heart of the 10th commandment. It gets to the heart of coveting. Why would you desire the things of this world that others may have? Why would you desire the things of this world that others have obtained that God has blessed them with? Why would you desire that when you have the kingdom of God? Why would you want those things when you have the kingdom of God? Here are the desires of the heart. Do you have a heart that reflects a desire for worldly possessions? Do you have a heart that reflects a desire for worldly things? Or do you have a heart that reflects a desire for the heavenly things? In many ways, 
the decision that the man made with that field or the merchant made is the decision we must make every day. What's most precious to us? And every day we live, every day we live, we get to testify again that worldly pleasures, worldly things are all fleeting and passing away. We get to show our hearts again toward the Lord that what we desire most is Him, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Look again to that rich young ruler. When Jesus says, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't do those things, all of these I've kept. One thing you lack. Sell your possessions. Get rid of it all. The rich young ruler stands in contrast to that man in the field. One thing you lack. Sell everything you have and you will know the kingdom of heaven. May we not lack that one thing. May our hearts not reflect a love for this world or the things of this world. May we not covet after what this world can offer, no matter who has it or where they have it. May we covet after. Hear me when I say this. May we covet after the things of heaven. May we long for those things. May we long for those treasures. May we store up our joy there, not in here. At this point, I need to urge you like I hopefully I've done at every time and every one of these commandments, I need to urge you, look to Jesus. The worldly possessions will never satisfy you. The things of this world that you long for, that others may have, that you may covet after, that sin that condemns you and puts you under the wrath of God, those things you long for could never get you what you want. They can never fulfill your greatest desires and your greatest longings and your greatest hopes. They can never bring those things. It is only Christ Jesus that can fulfill those things. And as we look to the Old Testament and we consider God coming down and speaking on that mountain, and he speaks these commandments through the thunder, and we say, only if only I'd have heard him say it like that, I wouldn't commit it. If only I'd heard him come down and speak it to thunder, I wouldn't do it. And we say, look at that God of the Old Testament. And then we, then we come back and, and we like to say and use these little, these little um, quips or little things we may heard that the God of the Old Testament is a little bit different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is wrath. The God of the New Testament is love. My friends, let me tell you, just as he said, get away from covetousness, get away from sexual morality, get away from those things because the wrath of God is coming on those things. And the wrath of God in the Old Testament was just as real as the wrath of God in the New Testament. How do I know this? In the Old Testament, God poured out his wrath upon sinful people who deserved it in every way. But in the New Testament, he does something different. In fact, he ratchets up his wrath a little bit because God comes down on a mountain in the New Testament and fire and smoke appear and darkness comes down and there God speaks. And what does God say? This is my beloved son. You see, the wrath of God in the New Testament is poured out. But it's poured out not on those who deserve it, but on the one who doesn't deserve it. 
The wrath of God in the New Testament is poured out there on that hill, that mountain called Calvary. It's poured out on him, and he did not deserve it. He did not supposed to have it. But there God pours it out on him, and he takes every last drop, and he ends it for all of us, for all of us that are longing for something glorious, for all of us that are looking for the desires of our heart. We need not look any further than Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of our sin upon himself. We don't have to look past him. He's everything to us. The opposite of covetousness is displayed in the heart of Jesus. When Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ had no coveting within him. He let go of those things so that he can obtain the promises and glories of God. Jesus is our example. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our example. As the passage says, consider others greater than yourselves, for Christ considered you. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to covet, you can't consider others greater than yourself. Jesus becomes our example in this. And his reward is greater. You can grab all the things of this world, and if any of you have spent your life and lived your life, you know what it is to long for something in this world, to long for that job or long for that possession or long for that vehicle, for longing for this, to long for that. You know what it is. And you also know that at the end of the day, it doesn't satisfy you. Just go back. I remember going to my grandmother's house after she passed away. I didn't even know it, but she kept every JCPenney catalog that had ever existed. And there in that JCPenney catalog, I would flip back to the toy section and circled over and over again was every toy on the planet. I forgot they existed, right? My longings were great for those things. But the things of this world can never satisfy. Moth and rust and time destroy. Christ, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has a possession waiting for us in heaven. An inheritance that cannot be defiled, that is unfading and protected for us. So why, in God's glorious name, will we long for the things of this world? Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says there's one place, there's one place where we see the heart of Jesus. A lot in Scripture talks about our own hearts. There's one place where we see the heart of Jesus. And it comes after this glorious invitation that he gives. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. If you come to Christ, no matter what you have done or where you have been, no matter what your hands have wrought, no matter what your mind has thought, 
No matter what your tongue has said, no matter what sin you have committed, what we hear from our great and glorious Savior from that mountain of Calvary, from that cross where he died for you is this, come to me weak and wearied sinner and I will never, ever cast you out. And when you come, all the desires of your heart will be met in Christ. For the things of this world will go strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us and giving us a word that not only tells us we're sinners, but tells us the re remedy for that sin. You've given us a word, Father, that does not hide the truth, no matter how painful or how hard it is. It tells us the truth. And the truth is, God, that in and of ourselves, in our own sinfulness, in our own desires, in our own hearts, the truth is, Father, we deserve your wrath and your judgment. But the good news, what we call the gospel today, is that Jesus Christ has taken that for us. He has taken your wrath and your judgment and he has put it to death. He has crushed it. He has ended it. And for your glory, Father, we stand here today proclaiming that in Jesus Christ, all of our hopes can be met. All of our dreams can be fulfilled. All of our desires and longings can be satisfied. So let no one leave this place, Father, still desiring the things of this world. Let they leave here today, God, desiring nothing more and nothing less than the glorious goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, may we not covet after anything in this world, but may we hold on to the one thing that never changes, that gets better and better, sweeter and sweeter, our Savior. Father, if someone here today recognizes that if you're to look upon their heart, all you would see was sinfulness, all you would see was longing after the worldly things, God. God, let them see today that you're the one who changes hearts. You're the one who changes lives. And all they have to do is ask. All they have to do is call upon you, and you will give them a new heart, a heart that reflects your name and your glory and that is satisfied in Jesus. Father, I pray that's happening even now. Work through your spirit in our hearts even now to tune us toward you. For your name and for your glory, we proclaim these things. If you're here today and you recognize that your heart doesn't reflect Christ Jesus and you want it to, we'll be standing at the front, ready to receive you. Let's stand together and sing.